We are nailing it, huh, Dennis? Oh, crushing it. Mostly from audio settings perspective. I don't know if uh, anybody likes content, but these little checkboxes that we have to click to get all the audio routed, that we're killing. We're crushing it. Oh, yeah. Definitely not screwing it up somehow every single time. Yep. Uh, is BB there today? Is Because she brings a real energy to the call, your, your kitty cat. Uh, she is around, but she's not in my immediate presence right oh, now. Oh, she's mad at you. Mm-hmm. She's mad as heck at you. Huh? <laughs> she is uh, uh, observing all of the construction guys take down scaffolding outside, so she's pretty much preoccupied. Is the construction work over? Have you, are you, because you've been uh, the only person that works for our company that's been going into an office where there's nobody else so that you can escape the construction noise. Yeah, so it's concluded, but now they are in the long process of disassembling all of the scaffolding, um, which, if it takes as long as putting it up, should be another couple of weeks. But they've made pretty good progress so far. Wow. Yeah. Uh, just so everybody knows, uh, what what's your address? <laughs> <laughs> One, two, three Main Street. If, if people have uh, problems with the content, you are the quality uh, control and mm-hmm. point of contact. Censorship department, uh, among other things. Yep. Uh, level one customer support. Uh, so just route any angry comments my way. Okay. Well, people and people can't. The best way to do that is by just posting a public negative comment on LinkedIn that mentions you. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I guess we're shifting those comments from your page to my page. <laughs> All right. I, you know what? Only one, only one. Ten ep- uh This was episode. This is episode ten, and uh, so far, only one person who didn't necessarily agree what we had to say, but their opinion is valid. And um, you know, yeah, yeah, I'm enjoying it. a lot more. A lot more little dings here and pings, and I send every one of them to you because I'm still trying to convince you uh, not to be as reluctant of a podcast host as you are. You know, you're making an impact <laughs> here, right? Yeah, I am the reluctant podcast host. And I know that you're censoring a bunch of people that like reach out to you and are like, man, who's that guy you do the podcast with? He's really funny. Um, so No, know, there's I, been good. I just, hey, I, all the I good feedback too. I get, I send your way too, okay? Now, Dennis, I, I got to say, I did not prepare a shared secret for this podcast. Wow. Okay. That's kind of off-brand, not typical of you, but okay. What are we going to do to fill the time then? Well, I I mean, I just didn't have to prepare it because I know it so well, (laughs) and this is the one that we've been waiting for, huh? I stepped right into it. Yep. Okay. Yeah. This is it. What, What is the topic? Tell me the secret. We... As a cybersecurity industry, and maybe we as in mankind, are incredibly bad at measuring our success. Oh, okay. I like this. I, I, I think that this is uh, very relevant. I, I want to hear what you have to say. Okay. Um, <laughs> anytime I, I get to see a lot of, of metrics, measurements, I get to see a lot of people try to... to back up. And even more than that, I get to see a lot of people. I I mean, I work with a lot of ambitious people. I like, you know, interacting with um, people that are very dedicated um, and and are, you know, committed to career growth. I really like that and as in tribute. But a lot of the ways 
that their industries define success criteria also are, are kind of broken. So how do we measure the success of, of a person in their job role? How do we measure the success of an investment we make in security, software security, infrastructure security, all types of things? We're really bad at creating measurements. Uh, we're really bad at interpreting data. The only thing that we seem to be really good at is and I'm not trying make sure that I, it doesn't come off negative. I'm not trying to say that people are are un- universally self centered and I mean we're we're social people, but we are good at acting in our own self interest, right? Like that's why we establish incentive models for mm-hmm. sales. That's why we try to reward um, certain types of behaviors and not others. But when uh, most of the time we do that. We're, we're kind of messing and potentially incentivizing people in unexpected ways. So that's that's the concept. And the rest of the podcast will be me telling stories about uh, <laughs> places where I've seen this. But what what do you think about the concept? And then we'll get into maybe specific examples where where this might often occur and what to look for. I am totally on board with that concept. I think that, you know, those Freakonomic books did a great job of presenting this in a very consumable way, right? The, the those were, uh, yeah. I, I mean, that the, of all the, I, 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 we've had that this conversation before, but I think of, of all the, the books I've read that I think have helped me with my cybersecurity career, that is definitely one of them of like, because it, it de- it, it takes away and, and redefines, it doesn't necessarily redefine for, for academics, but it redefines, I think, for the lay person, that was kind of the intention of the books, that economics are the study of how people act in their best, their, their self-interest and their best interest, and the study of those incentive models, and not necessarily simply about financial economics, right? Oh yeah, totally, and you know a, a bunch of uh, entertaining anecdotes in there. So I, I'm excited to hear about you know your cyber security specific examples here. So I'll, I'm on board. Um, I've, I've you know spoiler alert. I feel like this might be another high score at the end of the day. But let's see. Yeah. I want to. Well, I'm getting ahead of myself. You here. know what I'm going to do? I'm going to make you tell the first example because we had a micro version of this discussion. I think it was in Shift Left where we were talking about, well, what if somebody can't run mm. the code scanner because their language didn't support? We did this great improv bit where I'm like, oh, Dennis, you're the you're the <laughs> bad security guy. And, and you, at the end of that bit, you were like, nobody would ever do that. And I told my story about how um, when I was on the infrastructure side of things, we had a guy who wrote some firewall rules to, to black hole the the scanner and you're like that's an extreme example i've never seen anything like that now two weeks ago you and i were on a phone call together mm-hmm. and we were having another version of like we we're trying to help somebody measure their cyber their software security success and kind of start out that you know they were a person who were building a new program i mean it was just like a really classic example of somebody who um you know is really trying to set up a framework early on to to try to measure and grow and I, so it was a cool conversation in that conversation, I told maybe one or two of my little things, and all of a sudden, out of nowhere, Denny Two Shoes comes on <laughs> and is like, "Okay, I've got a story to back this up." 
and you told, tell the story. Like, I don't even remember the exact details. I just remember it was like 100% backing up my entire philosophy. And you had, and then I pinged you afterwards and you were like, oh, I never didn't think of it at the time. So what is that? Do you remember that story? I, I do remember the story. And, and more importantly, I do remember getting chewed out by you after that phone conversation. Uh, as Remi- <laughs> I call that reminding, Dennis. That's how, that's how I remind you. But uh, yeah, we were talking about measuring success and um, be careful what you measure because it can, can, uh, can create these unintended, almost like uh, blind spots in the program, right? And so I was given an example of uh, a company that was trying to measure the success of its testing program. And it would had two, uh, let's say, if we were going to say carrot and stick, this would be two stick metrics that they would look at, you know. Uh, who are the people that haven't submitted themselves for a test yet? And who are the people that haven't fixed all the stuff that came out of that test? And so every day they'd review these metrics and they would go and see, okay, who would they have to knock on the head to remind, hey, you got to get this done, right? You know, we got to turn this graph from red to green. And uh, they were only seeing green in their metrics, but they were very far off from 100% compliance. So they're like scratching their heads, what's going on? And what they had found was that folks would <laughs> Some teams had found out that if they submit themselves for a test, but they keep just stiff arming the tester from actually letting them do the test, right? Or just never answer the tester's email that yes, they have submitted themselves for a test. And yes, they had nothing to fix because they've actually avoided doing the test that they could live in this little blind spot um, and sort of on the metrics appear like they're in compliance and then not get annoyed with anyone and effectively hide from that requirement. So uh, so, yeah, it did not occur to me at the time. Great, in our previous- it's a great example of both of what I'm trying to say of saying like, I mean, that's not a bad person. I get mm-hmm. it. They're incentivized probably to get their code out on time, get their product release, right? There's all these hard incentives. We're measuring all these dimensions and we didn't prioritize them really well. So they found, you know, one way to to maybe kind of press pause on the security process while they meet their other objectives and achievements. And it's they're working in their own best interest. And we set up maybe to your point, I mean, those those seem like relatively um, you know, consistent objectives. The implementation had a little, you know, you can kind of threat model and find a little business logic flaw in the implementation. But that's true, right? Like we build a culture around and, and most organizations, you know, they get good at finding bugs and then they try to get good at fixing bugs. And a lot of the time they spend get good at fixing bugs is around defect management of a large number of issues, right? You turn on those, those um, you know, floodgates and those issues start, you start stacking those bodies up and, and you got to, you got to get on top of it. And then, you know, they, maybe our developers don't do that as fast. So we start putting down these service level agreements that we share with the whole world. And we say, okay, well, developer A is better at fixing bugs than developer B. And we're we're creating a culture when we do that. I think there's a lot to be said that, um, we're not necessarily that some of those in certain environments, that's not the, the healthiest way to ensure that things get, um, fixed and, and managed to, to fix. I think, um, you know, it's, it's definitely a challenge in some place to, to balance, you know, the, what I generally talk about as, you know, the seven dimensions 
of, um, you know, application security when I'm helping people with this problem. I usually think about it in terms of seven things, um, which we can cover briefly. But we didn't setting up that economy, that market within the thing that, that penalizes people for having open bugs is going to also stand in the way and oppose adoption of the things that find bugs. And if you do do it early, you might even do it at so early that where you're, you hold back adoption of your gates, adoption of your information, adoption of the telemetry. And we've talked about, you know, how that means that people might just want to stick over in the unmanaged risk space because as soon as they become managed, it's actually worse for them in terms of people's perception of their, their overall performance. Now, this isn't just limited to the things we're doing and the, but how do people get, how do people get promoted? I mean, typically, I mean, just give me whatever you you went on mute. That's not a good sign for the podcast. Then <laughs> <laughs> Uh, in 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 your personal experience, how did you get promoted? I mean, what what what's we'll we'll kind of talk about how this intersects with cybersecurity. But just how do, how do people get promoted? Well, I think that you know you're showing competence and uh, more so excellence, right? In your the duties that you have right now, and showing that you can take on on more responsibilities. And you know, ultimately, when you're going up for promotion, then you're taking a look at that next role and what you'd have to do there, and sort of mapping your current performance and uh, potential towards the duties for that next, that next level. I, I think you're right. I think most jobs at the beginning of the year, beginning of some sort of period or whatever, you say, here's what I'm going to do. And you list essentially what are projects. Mm-hmm. Is that fair enough? I mean, even if it's something like, going out and growing a business, you could imagine that to be a project. But you could also imagine something like a, an AppSec director sitting down at the beginning of the year and saying, hey, we need to deploy these three different tools. And you can imagine their boss saying, cool, you've got the budget and you know, let's see how you do. And at the end of the year, if they deploy those three tools they will have demonstrated the confidence or something like that and will get promoted. Now, that's a lot easier for somebody to agree to. It's very it has very low variables in terms of I mean if if the just getting the tools deployed because you're not saying okay, we need these tools integrated into these apps or whatever. Like it's 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 really a basic level of project management and delivery mm. with low variables. This is actually huge in infrastructure space too, because a lot of it's like, okay, well, I'm going to build a new data center or whatever. Um, but there's much fewer variables. The problem is at the end of that, I mean, what have they done at the end of that? They have checked boxes on what they said they were going to do, but we don't know the impact on, you know, did this person at a certain level of leadership leadership make security better? And that's kind of my my thing. Like once you get to a level of, of um, security leadership, we should probably measure you on your impact <laughs> on security, right? Like mm-hmm. not just your ability to do what you said you do. I mean, that's a pretty, in my opinion, that's how we we manage um, people starting their careers, right? We we don't give people starting their careers necessarily problems. We give them 
you know, duties. Um, whereas later on in, I mean, a sign of it kind of executive leadership is people are working on problems. Does that, do you agree with that? Yeah, I, I see that. And I think that you're just saying like, you know, make sure that we're taking these objectives, that final step and mapping it to the context, right? Why do we care? Why was that important? Uh, important? And, you know, the question you're asking, yeah, how did you make things more secure or improve overall security? It's almost never, I, I'm just going to make a statement that is almost never assessed in enterprise information security. And I'm going to talk about the financial sector and just kind of as an example of my personal experience of how do you move up in your career from individual contributor to, you know, manager, director, you know, in the banking world, we have vice presidents that sound a little bit fancier than, than they, they can be uh, <laughs> a fancier title than the than compared to a vice president of some other firm, but we move up that chain and it's, it's actually a pretty concrete formula and in the space that I was where the way that you move up is by, you know, pretty consistently checking off what you said you're going to do project wise in a year. And then two other dimensions, how many people do you manage and what's your overall budget? Now this, these I think are in the financial world seen as we trust this person to, um, confidently manage a program. Those are, are met sizes of programs and metrics that people, um, you know, it's, it's a kind of a trust and execution confidence thing. And it's a metric that they use for promotion. If you want to make it from, you know, job level 17 to 18, it means that you're managing roughly twice the number of people and your budget, you know, we trust you to manage, you know, 50% higher budget or whatever it is. Right. And that gets super broken because when we're working on security, <laughs> the last thing we want to introduce is to say, I want to constantly be adding more people to my team, right? What does that de-incentivize? If, if I'm trying to, to, to get promoted to senior vice president at a bank and I'm told that, okay, well, senior vice presidents manage, you know, $20 million budgets and have a hundred people working for them. What does it incentivize me to do? Uh, just sort of, let's say, keep manual processes around. And uh, I mean, absolutely. Right. Yeah. Like I'm going to have all these help desks, you know, like I'm going to really hesitate if I've got a, op an automation opportunity or, you know, some type of workflow or I'm able to, to fix some defect routing where I can, you know, really free up. And, and I think healthy security behavior almost always comes down to, I want to free up human time to work on creative problems or problems that require creative solutions. Mm -hmm. So I'm always going to be looking. That's one of the seven things, right? Um, that I'm looking for is automation opportunities. So now what's the other thing to do? 20, what, is, what am I going to do with that $20 million? Uh, spend it, of course, right? <laughs> uh, how would I, what's the easiest way for me to spend $20 million? Uh, buying a lot of tools. Right. <laughs> and every tool you buy is an experiment, right? You think that you've got a problem space and a tool is going to help you probably most of the time, most of the tools out there help you convert, you know, find defects, right? I think that that's what tools are good in both software security and infrastructure security or find deviations from standards or whatever, whatever those things are, tools are really good at finding stuff because they, 
you know, they, we have powerful computers, they can, they have good coverage, they can run, you know, and, and computer time is less expensive than people time. But a lot of times I can spend money and I've seen this happen too and get a self-service tooling thing off the ground or whatever. And I haven't considered all the other stakeholders commitment to really integrate those tools in the mm. enterprise. And I've seen so many projects get stuck with that. I mean, five, $10 million with the tools in year one, sitting on a on a on a shelf basically maybe there is a very opportunistic level of scanning and but the licensing whatever the licensing model is i'm still paying you know based on number of developers or something like that for a tool that i wasn't able to get integrated into my pipeline or pipelines that's another big problem that enterprises just naturally have is a lot of times, you know, there's a bunch of different shapes. We talked about this on the platform diversity, the, the tech stack diversity thing. There might not be one place you can go and deploy a tool. You might have to go to a hundred places and deploy the tool. So, you know, they, at the beginning of the year said, I'm going to get so-and-so off the ground. And they did that, but they probably had to make some concession to say, yeah, people can open a ticket and use the tool opportunistically, but they haven't changed people. You know, what, like, what's mm-hmm. the impact on the security program? Very little, if, if any, um, because they still have to now create a culture in which people or a process or governance or which, uh, whatever to get people to come and use those things. Mm-hmm. And that's the hard part um, for sure. So, okay, I have, I have advice. Um, I think you were kind of on board early on, but let's just do a quick problem check and then maybe we can use nine minutes for, for advice. So people are, and, and by the way, I, most people are, are social animals. <laughs> most people also have a natural desire to have, you know, healthy partnerships and teams and things like that. So I'm not saying that people are going to always act in their own self-interest and do dodgy things. People are going to try to do the right thing because they're a part of a community. But as soon as that the community gets a little toxic, that's going to go out the window too. (laughs) So there's a lot of places that just end up being super broke because it's not a fun place to be and the incentive models are broken and they see people maybe playing the games and being successful in playing the games. And they say, I'm not going to do that. And, you know, things become just more and more non-functional. So really important to, to look at your, your culture and, and, but I, I want to give some advice around how to be successful, maybe measuring things. Um, but before I do that, Dennis, mm. yes, uh, you know, it, you know what I read. I didn't, I don't even have to tell you what I rate this premise, but I want you to rate, rate it too. So, oh, reading the premise, uh, or, I, uh whatever. <laughs> I don't give just, us your weekly rating. What do you, uh, my weekly rating is, uh, nine out of 10, nine out of 10. Well, I think it's 10 out of 10. So still I'm losing a point. This is something that I, I really think is true. Um, also we like rush to, I mean, when we actually, even if we have a good idea on what we want to measure from a metrics perspective, Metrics are kind of like software. I'm going to get this last one point in two seconds. I'm going to get this. Metrics and measurements are like software in that if we we can implement them in ways that have bugs. And mm-hmm. if we're not careful about it, even a, a well-defined conceptually, a well-defined metric 
can be implemented in a way where it doesn't actually measure what you think it does. So that's my extra one point. Can you please re-rate it and give me a 10 so that we can move on? I totally give it a 10 now. Um, okay. I feel like that, that was exactly like speaks to the example I gave at the top of this uh, chat, right? You know, hey, oh, yeah, yeah both. S- yep. measuring submitted tests. That's what I think that I need to be measuring to show success in this. And it's like, no, you probably want to be measuring completed tests, right? And it's okay. like, okay, yeah. Anyway. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, so here's the deal. If you want to get good at measuring something, first of all, you really need to be thinking about the security, not just the security, but there's, I, I, I'll, I'm going to throw this out there. Uh, <laughs> it, it's something, you know, I, I, I developed in the last couple of years to help people with maturity action planning, but um, it's, we look at it in seven dimensions, which are, you know, these are the seven types of questions you can ask about something. I'll, I'll we'll kind of phrase it like that. But what's the friction of something? How can we measure the friction of something? Um, how good are we are capturing automation opportunities? So if we're doing a bunch of manual work, is there an automation dimension we should consider? Um, what's our coverage, right? Like coverage is a really important baseline thing for us. If we're running an experiment like deploying a tool, understanding and having a control group, right? And I'll get into the the second part of this a little bit, but coverage gives us that control group. So now we can look at maybe a measurement of friction for people using the tool versus not using the tool, right? Or we could look at a measure of maybe people have a security time code that they build against. So for people that got the new automation, the the amount of time that they spend on security overall go down, right? So we we use coverage as a very important tool um, because it's the denominator in a lot of metrics too. Timing, we had a whole Don't Shift Left podcast, so you can go hear my thoughts about timing there. Timing isn't just how fast it runs. Timing isn't just when it runs. Timing is means a lot of things to me. Opportunity cost, I look at because when somebody tells me to measure the ROI, my brain explodes. I don't know what the ROI is. We're not. There's some organizations that try to define their success criteria as not been breached. But there's a huge variable out there of like whether or not you are under adversarial pressure. So it's very unpredictable for me to try to guess from a breach impact perspective what the ROI, you know, numbers and figures I have from that. What's the likelihood of that happening? And also, it's very hard for me to tell like, okay, well, within a particular security activity, is it going to prevent that 100% of the time? So I hate ROI. What I do like is being able to like say, okay, well, one pen test Costs the same as three code scans. So, and we're getting better findings out of pen test versus code scan. So, you know, I can, I can kind of compute in terms of, cause I'm almost always at the, that same beginning of the year, you've got these five projects. I've got these, you know, this $3 million or whatever it is. I'm working within a set of fixed resources. So opportunity cost is really useful when I'm deciding how to, which maturity or which capabilities to grow, shrink, whatever. Um, remediation, like there's a maturity spectrum and remediation on the low end. We don't get anything fixed basic level. We're getting things that we find fixed one by one at the high end. We're like learning from each of those issues and evolving our programs to avoid those issues. So I like to think about remediation as a specific question. And there's great metrics about remediation. Remediation is one area where metrics, uh, mean time to remediate is really useful um, as a metric and probably should be considered a quintessential, you know, like DevSecOps metric. Hmm. 
And lastly is the one thing that we probably would, you know, we'd guess that you'd want to measure um, at the beginning of this thing, which is like some security dimension. So how much more resilient to attack do we think that we made that? <clears throat> Metrics that are good in this space are things like uh, defect density. Like that that can be useful. And especially if you analyze defect den- density in like recurrence of specific types of issues. So on remediation side of things, one of the other things I like to, to try to look at if possible, if I have the data set, is are the same types of CWEs common weaknesses coming back with the same developers, right? Like maybe we train developers, maybe we can measure, you know, are they getting better at preventing those types of issues? That I think is a is a sign of evolution and remediation. So this whole thing is is wrapped up in, in just a, a mnemonic we call factors. Um, so friction, automation, coverage, timing, opportunity, cost, remediation, security. Did I miss any? Did I spell factors correctly? You spelled factors correct. Okay. <laughs> so so that's the 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 kind of the the areas. Now, how do we create a good measure metric? Here, become. I don't know. You really got to think back to eighth grade science, or for our Canadian listeners, grade eight science, because this is key. Every investment you make, every project you do, every, you know, the success criteria should not be getting it done. You have a theory that that change, evolution, enhancement is going to make an impact on one of those seven things. As as far as I know that those seven things do a pretty good job of covering all the ways that you can improve a capability. So you're proposing something and you're going to, you know, you have some theory that it's going to move the bar in one of those seven things. Mm-hmm. And now your goal is to create one or more metrics and measurements that support your theory. What does this sound like to you that you did in eighth grade? Uh, scientific method. Exactly. Or, yep. <clears throat> I, I, what were you going to say? Or, or, or a science fair <laughs> experiment. I wasn't sure how tactical. Exactly. No, yeah. You okay. are, you are an experimental, I mean, the scientific method is used in, in scientific experiments. And as security practitioners, I would encourage us to rethink of ourselves as scientists. And also this is really good for culture too, right? Because we're no longer just trying to check boxes Now we're running experiments and also it brings into light, I think what is maybe culturally not always seen as a good thing that we might be wrong about something, something we might want to do might be too high in friction or might generate too much work for the people we have, or it might be not that necessary for certain risk applications. So our coverage could be a little bit less. It could be targeted at maybe critical applications that have these types of interfaces or things like that. So we're, we're scientists and we have a theory and the metrics are what are, are, should be pretty easy to create at that point to say, okay, if we buy this thing, it's going to help us manage our tickets better. It's going to reduce, we're going to, we're going to get through automation. We're going to reduce some frictions with our, our development teams. That's a super positive theory. You go out, you get that tool, you plumb it in, and it works or it doesn't work. And, you know, maybe that's a survey instrument or something like that. Like, how do you feel about the new workflow versus others? So, but whatever it is, 
if you're asking those seven questions about your experiment, but the, you have to, what's the, what's the most, one of the most important things, what's one of the single things you can do in an experiment? Like you can get your thesis wrong in an experiment and still ha- the experiment has value, right? Mm-hmm. How do you lose value from an eighth grade science experiment? You don't collect what? the data. You don't okay. take the measurements. Missing, yeah. Okay. How even if you did take the measure, you had a theory, you get the data, you take the measurements. What's the absolute essential thing for an eighth grade science experiment mm. that we almost never think about in security metric development? Uh, avoiding bias, like trying to see what you want in the data. I, I mean, Google the eighth grade scientist. I think it'll pop out to you as <laughs> if you Google the scientific method. Mm-hmm. Here's what I'm going for, Dennis. Control group. Control. Uh, yes. Okay. Controlling the variables. You want to test one thing relatively when you're making a change from if you have two different sets of data and whatever you need to control. So if you're going to Let's say you have an application portfolio of 100 apps and you're going to run an experiment on 10 of them, right? Now you need to compare the data with those 10 things with the other ones to see and and also with themselves from before. You need to try to control for those variables, right? So maybe they got better because of some other, you're trying to limit and reuse the, the variables. So you actually have to, I think we probably need to spend more time thinking about it and run, you know, man, this opens up the doors to other things, right? I can train some set of developers on a particular type of issue and see if they start introducing less of those issues. And that's going to give me an experiment to maybe validate how good my training is on that particular topic. Mm. Things like that. Mm-hmm. Almost never done. <laughs> like I'm, So um, I'm, I'm just kind of encouraging people to, to get out. Now, there is a version of the scientific method that is... Um, kind of, I don't, it's it's marketed toward people developing metrics, and that's called GQM, Goal Question Metric. The goal is your theory, uh, or <laughs> you know, it, the questions are the experiments, and the metrics are the observations. But I like to think about it as a scientific method better because 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 we so often miss you know the handling multiple variables. There are a couple of tools in science that people use to handle multiple variables, things like correlation. And th- But trust me, the best metrics you have are going to um, control for those variables. They're going to be targeted at those seven areas. And they're going to be mapped to the questions. And I think we should incentivize people, not necessarily on 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 the impact of those seven areas as well, right? So running an experiment and failing, no problem with. Like that should culturally be okay. But it does also demand a certain like frugality that these experiments can't all be $10 million experiments that fail. So that that pilot phases, you know, product selection, being really sure about your po- po- uh, product by by doing a really good bake-off. And what are bake-offs? They're new little experiments. So what are we what are we looking for in a product? What are some of the requirements of experience and how do we design the test scenarios in that pilot to prove that we're getting those in, intended benefits? All right. I totally agree, right? You know, important to set out those cre- clear criteria and uh, give yourself something to track along to, right? Make sure that thing you're moving the needle in the direction that you you intended. Mm-hmm. And if if you want to, I, in my opinion, if you want to demonstrate and be that 
that real security leader in somebody you and you're working on your a lot of people this time of year might be still working on their their annual business objectives maybe describe those objectives as the kind of impacts that you want to make on one of those seven things right um and not so much executing on a plan that you have now we know that you can run the experiments so sh- commit to making the value right commit to the impacts you're trying to make um but I also get it if <laughs> if you're going to get promoted a little bit more concretely by by jumping through the hoops, you know, I want you to I want you to get to that next level, but then as soon as you have time to really do do what I consider the the right stuff, think about it. Think about uh, you know, those experiments you can run. All right. Let me just get down off of my high horse here. Um Dennis Kev now, somebody who is excellent at running experiments, one of the best problem solvers I know, mm-hmm. not just in computer security, but in real life. If I were, if I had some sort of disaster <laughs> that was overwhelming to me, the, one of the number one go-to guys I would want with me, both for his temperament and raw problem-solving ability, is Trent Johnson. And yep. Uh, also, another guy that seems completely like straight out of a movie uh, with the the houseboat. Another person whose mental image I don't think I could ever meet in person because uh, I just have this fantastical private eye living on a houseboat kind of vibe coming off. <laughs> <laughs> it's a sailboat. It's it's a little bit less luxurious than a houseboat um, and more adventurous. I, I would say. Oh, so, definitely yeah. more adventurous. Okay. Um, so yeah, Trent is uh it, it was was a, a a tremendous mentor uh for me um in a lot of different ways. One, you know, he was he always uh to this day um <laughs> has has a technical edge on me and and uh in in some some areas that I'm very interested in like uh Unix security and things like that. Um application security and, and software security from uh from the technical edge. Um but he also just knows I mean he's he's one of these guys that has just a, a really refined um compass of what matters to him um and um and making sure that he's um yeah, just just a, a really great uh balanced person. Um and and I mean that with with 100% uh he, he uh, like a mentorship. I look up to him uh in that particular way to try to try to be a more balanced person myself. So Trent, thank you so much for for making the time from from satellite. We have you on uh on satellite. Yeah, thanks Kevin. It's great to be here down from uh sunny florida to left yeah not easy uh to to uh to get you on a podcast given your 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 lifestyle choices so you you tend to commit yourself to land for uh uh only a a working day to to get all your 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 tasks done and catch up but other than that you're you're a seaborne person now <laughs> yeah pretty much that's correct living on a Dover 42 sailboat awesome um so I think that that'll be like the fourth or fifth because we're going to try to go chronologically, but I definitely want to make it there one day. You, you and I, you are our Dop's age and um, very good friends with Dop. And I, I would say early on, 
Um, generally, you know, we interacted when I was visiting DOP or, or through DOP a little bit. He and I were a little bit closer. But I would say that you, um, I profoundly remember when the summer you guys were leaving for college, you called um, my house. I think you had my sister's number from, you know, math study groups. And you invited me yeah. to computer explorers which was we talked about it on the episode with dop but a offshoot of the boy scouts which was focused on like helping kids with computer exploration or whatever that was hosted at a local um agricultural industry um and that was in the episode with dop if people remember we we talked about kind of running around on this company's computers but you were the president of of that club or something like that and i think doing some presidential duties to kind of hand it down to the next generation and kind of retain membership when you guys were going away is that true do you have any information about that club because i i dop and i really didn't even know, you know the i origin don't really of it. remember that much um you were I the president how I could you not president. remember no i feel like, i don't think i was the president i feel like matt pepping might have been the president oh see i thought you i thought you even handed your presidency down to, i thought this was like a very diligent uh plan of succession <laughs> it was like better than any of the last six presidential elections your succession planning so that so maybe that's unfair but do you do you remember you know i believe it was, her name was barb and her husband also worked there but do you remember anything about, because the first time I went there was kind of as you guys were leaving, but do you remember, I, I mean, do you have any any memories of fun stories or something like that? Did you do that before? We're going to get into a couple other things that we usually do up front, but that was... Yeah, I definitely remember Barb, and I can't recall her husband. Larry, name, but, maybe? Uh, I thought maybe Larry. Yeah, that, that could be right. Um, okay. But yeah, it was great. They pretty much just let us have run of the computers there, and it was kind of crazy, like, I don't think this, anything like that would happen today in most corporations that I've ever been in. Yeah, that's the yeah, theme of the podcast is bad decisions in the 1990s by otherwise viable <laughs> businesses. Um, so let's let's get into that. I've, I've been doing this first computer. Uh, I mean, at this point, it's guessing and half the people I didn't even know. So it's, it's a moot point. But this is a fun one for you because you're – you're going away to college computer. I remember originally you bought a Cyrix 686-166, which was a, I don't know if it was a 166, but it was definitely a Cyrix 686 with probably 32 meg of RAM. And that was like the first non-Intel processor that I remember hitting the market that like had um, claims of high performance. This was like pre-Athlon, so like 1996. And... The problem was, and my sister also got one going away to college. I won't blame you for bad advice, but uh, uh, <laughs> and those things had a nasty heat problem. So, like, given the cooling options of the day and the the standard, you know, cases and standard airflow, those things would kind of uh, have a lot of uh, volatility and stability issues dealing with the heat dissipation. Is that is that right? Do you remember anything about that? Yeah. I pretty much remember that. I remember having to wait to do like kernel builds until nighttime when it was a little bit cooler, especially some summers we were living in places without air conditioning. But yeah, there was some nasty heat issues on those. They were cheap, so I guess I get what you pay for. But. Yeah, and that high performance, I guess, when you work. And and if we had 
modern heat sinks, airflow option type of stuff, that would have been pretty solid. Like, I don't think that the heat the heat um, was actually worse than you know what a high performance process a few years later would be. It's just like the ecosystem around it couldn't handle it. Right. Yeah, I don't remember anyone ever like there was no such market as like CPU coolers or anything right. like that. Is- now, whatever. I don't even know if it had a heat sink. Now, maybe even more fun than that. Early on in college, I think you're going to tell us about it. But you went to work somewhere, and you got to spec this like five thousand dollar system, and you specced a dual Pentium Pro two hundred with at least 128 meg RAM, maybe 256. But you spent this massive, uh, I think, Micron. Uh, server for some department at University of Illinois, and the fun. Uh, the, I think the funnest thing about that is Linux had very limited, if at all, multiprocessor support. So you actually had to uh, run Intel Solaris on it, and Intel Solaris wasn't very popular. So I think maybe even you had to buy the. Sp- the Solaris Intel CC compiler just in order to get GCC to compile <laughs> and then build all your software from there. Yeah, that's uh, that's bringing back some old memories or ni- maybe nightmares. But yeah, that was, we were running Solaris x86. I don't remember if it was really because the department was sort of against Linux or um, I think they just really liked keeping Solaris on everything they had and they had a bunch of other Solaris stuff. Um, so, oh, that's funny. I, I recall that it was just because the Linux multiprocessing support was pretty much zero. I mean, it could have been, I don't remember exactly. Like, okay. I couldn't imagine running X86 on anything. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. You, you've been such a a Linux guy and I think we'll, we'll, we'll get into some of that too. But, um, now you've been mentioned by uh, other guests on the podcast, Nick Braglio, Dop, in in both episodes. So in order to pull the picture together for people that are listening to these in some level of sequence, and and maybe you know, I, or or I don't know, but if if somebody's an avid fan, I want to I want to connect the events of of previous throwback podcast to you in a lightning round in which I call, "Will you admit to doing this?" <laughs> okay, that sounds like it could be fun. Okay. Uh, will you admit to exploiting the X server trust between two BCL systems in order to attach a uh, keyboard sniffer? Yeah, I'm pretty sure that happened. <laughs> okay. Will you admit to leveraging your U of I engineering account to run a parallel password cracker against BCL's password file? Yeah, got, got caught for that one. Got caught for that one. Okay, I I want to hear as we get into this if there what what exactly your memory of that uh, event was because I'm curious to see if you ever how you even heard that you were caught and things like that. Now, um, did you have DOP use a predict a predictive URL vulnerability to grab the answers to a chemistry exam and send them to your pager watch? First of all, will you admit to having a pager watch? Um, I'll admit to having a pager watch, but I can't confirm or deny anything. That oh, n- you're no that. commenting on that. I don't <laughs> think that they're going to pull your CS degree from 1999 <laughs> away from you, but we'll we'll see. Okay, so 
you had a pager watch, I think that lends enough credibility to the Dopp story. Um, if you want to sue him for, for slander, we can, we can get into it. Did you provide lookout support for Dopp to try, to, to try an in-person boot attack against the BCL Radius server? <laughs> yeah, that, that one happened. I think we had a bad floppy. I remember those floppy disks that never quite worked right. You, you know what? Shockingly, <laughs> the three and a quarter floppies seemed less reliable than the old five and three quarter <laughs> floppies. Like, you could throw a five and three quarter floppy. I, I mean, I had one for like 20 years, like, and just like tossing it around a desk, and it still played games. So I don't know who invented the hard sided case, but major fail on that guy's part, huh? Yeah, I definitely agree on that. Um, and then last one, not even a, a hacking thing, so hopefully you'll admit to this, but uh, Nick, did you show up at Soltech offices with just a van full of servers because you were upset with your existing hosting provider? <laughs> yeah, that was a stressful day, and we did a, I think we did a higher data center move within a few hours. Did you uh, did you plan it, or did you just show up there and be like, hey, we need space for these eight servers? We just showed up because our current provider had like no connectivity for like a week. So we were oh, like, well. gotcha. So you were in a, an outage scenario, and, and uh, whose van was it? <laughs> was it a van? Did the Dobbs truck? I think it was like Scott Gray had like a, a Jeep or something. I can't remember. Okay. Um, awesome. So that's the conclusion of the micro round. I think the only thing we didn't pin on you was uh, cheating on a school test because that, that U of I C yesterday, you wouldn't want to revoke at this point. You've been floating on that for, for quite a while now. Yeah, I still have the nightmares of having to go back and complete some obscure class that I just never got in. <laughs> we, we, yeah. So we don't want to lose that one. So in a in a in other threads I kind of hinted at the notion of me being me gravitating towards the system administration side whereas um other people gravitated towards program both my buddy Dennis and Rob Bridal they were kind of programmer guys I think that maybe you were in the sweet spot of kind of being one of the stronger one of the kids at both sides of that both uh programming as well as Linux um Maybe not system administration early on, but then very soon into that um, system administration. When, what was the actual first kind of production system you administrated? Was that in college? Yeah, that would have been in college. I was working for the um, database research laboratory. Um, that's where we had the um, Solaris X86 team. Okay. They had a bunch of um, like X terminal, you know, the dumb X terminals. Right. Yep. Just on the X remote off of those. So how did you get into computers as a kid before that? I mean, what, what was your story of becoming a computer kid? And, um, and, and you know, what was your introduction to Linux? What, what, tell me about, about a, a young Trent, because we, we didn't really know each other until you were at least in high school. And um, I, I think you were, you were already pretty defined as a, as a, as a computer savvy and, and technical uh, guru of the day yeah i really think it was one of my uncles um he had like a tandy coco and used to play games on it and write programs in basic he would always show me how to do fun stuff with it so then i eventually talked my parents into getting the, like a 486 maybe in like 1993 or so 
Yeah, which actually seems a little bit late because, I mean, just in terms of how fast, I mean, if we're thinking about the events of 96 and you're you're already building these, you know, specking out these massive servers and, and doing this kind of edge portability OSs and stuff like that, I, I think that that's a really fast um, progression, you know, I mean, from, uh, yeah, I mean, it just seems kind of extraordinary to me. Um, so... The, I also think I've asked like a hundred people on this podcast and I can't find anybody else who ever called into a BBS, but I remember you on BBSs. So, um, what is, was that kind of your first connectivity was dialing into BBSs? Yeah, definitely. Um, you should try to get Eric war on this podcast too, because he used to call into a lot. Yeah, he's he's been really dodging me. Like I've sent him like direct messages, <laughs> and he'll be like typing in the general Slack window and like ignoring me and and uh, in my private messages. But yeah, I I am very diligently working on getting Eric on the podcast, and hopefully, if he listens to this, he'll be compelled to say yes. <laughs> but yeah, I would call into. I think there was. Uh, I think he had a kind of a lot of BBSs. This- Mm-hmm. Thing was pretty cool. I thought there was like the SSP for like door games. The Chamber of Commerce had a really good one that had a good message board on it. Yeah, I remember we kind of used the Chamber of Commerce as the de facto email server for the town, right? Like that's where you kind of authoritatively sent a message and maybe you would call in. So it wasn't, and you would just call in for a minute and kind of do communication stuff and drop off. There wasn't like games on there that would tie up the line for a long time. Right, and I think they maybe even had two lines, so I think that's why people mm-hmm. use it for messages. Yeah, you could I chat. I remember it. chatting people on there occasionally. Like, you check to see who else was logged in. So. Um, and then uh, there was, so you mentioned another one was, what was the other BBS you mentioned? Um, we, there was the Steinkamp Software Plus. People just called it SSP. Yeah, I didn't, I, that one they I had a bunch about. of good, yeah, they had games. Um, we used to play Trade Wars. Mm-hmm. 2002 a lot on that one is that and, like a wildcat bbs or something yeah i think it was wildcat gotcha yep and then there was the like more commercial one um and then yeah so and then i remember like baker's bbs kind of having a one dial up system and then um you know our buddy who refuses to be on the pod test because he claims he can't remember anything was cosis op of the underground bbs in town like literally that was the name of it which um we're not sure what happened to because we can't get anybody to talk about it but there was claims that uh that it was uh taken down for some nefarious um uh files whether it be piracy or or something even more nefarious than that so no clue there yeah there was probably a little piracy on that one and but that one was cool because they actually did um dial up next to the internet uh, so you could get like your email address would have been at underground.com. Yeah. And they would call in every night, download the mail and send your messages out. So yeah. You have an, it, it, you would dial up. It's kind of interim kind of internet, interim internet connectivity. So they would batch like spool exchange their mail, almost like news groups type of thing. You know, that was a very common approach for people with news groups because the news group bandwidth took so much. But like prior to that, yeah, like doing it with mail seems, yeah, pretty cool. Um, I don't, I don't remember ever using that feature. Um, I think I had a CompuServe account that was my, my primary mail address, but yeah, pretty, pretty cool nonetheless. Um, yeah, because prior to that, I think we were using like the SSP and FidoNet. 
Um, I don't know if you were yeah, around that's during it. the Phytonet era, but that was kind of like dial-in, and it was. But I mean, it wasn't connected to the internet; it was its own thing. But you could connect people in other towns that were Phytonet. Now, do you do you remember doing any hacking on this like BBS day? Any 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 anything that you that you maybe shouldn't have been doing BBS style like um yeah I, I'm just curious because I I remember a couple of of tricks and a couple of things that 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 happened to to me and I'm wondering if if uh, yeah if if you got into any of that stuff I can't remember any specific things I think that really was before we were just kind of in the learning mode and maybe not into the exploitation mode okay so much so then so you got a computer in 93 you know 93 94 94 you're probably already looking at like oh maybe i should go and check out what this internet thing is 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 that kind of when you hopped on yeah i think i'm trying it might have been 94 um started out maybe with air america online and then um I knew a lot of people, some people were calling into, they had connections to U of I, they would dial in to, uh, there was Prairie Net. Uh, oh, right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But it was long distance. So I wasn't allowed to, some people were, it, it was pretty costly. I remember to call into it. Now you, you mentioned, you mentioned AOL and here's a, here's a fun thing I remember about you as a, uh, a youngster is if you were ever like participating in some kind of software exchange where we would like meet and exchange physical media, whoever was on the secret Santa end of your gift would get like 22 AOL <laughs> floppies. I don't think you bought a floppy ever. Uh, it was all AOL discs with like 14 markers over what the current status was. Is that true? Yeah. Maybe that's what, maybe that's what, uh, ended up having them all be so unreliable too. <laughs> so you would just, basically it sounds like your MO is to, uh, I don't know. There was a lot of schemes that you could get like multiple mailing list entries on the AOL. Here's your floppy in the mail. You would use the like one hour of internet off of each of those floppies and then dedicate the rest of it to, uh, to, uh, software exchange. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. <laughs> gotcha. Um, Okay, so you're you're on the internet, and I, is this the first time you get to interact with a um, with a Unix account? Now, like, I mean, uh, so early on in the, the the BCL days, I think you could you had the option of of kind of when you called into the terminal server, you could either just keep a shell account and then like telnet over to a, a Unix system, or you could fire up PPP. So you kind of did one or the other sometimes, because uh, sometimes it was just nice to have kind of a responsive uh, telnet to, to a, a, um, a, a internet controlled system and, and do business from there. But what, what was your memory of, of early getting on or what, you know, or did, were you kind of a windsock guy and then kind of check out, websites or, or what was the beginning of it for you? Yeah, so I think at the time I had maybe run Slackware Linux. Okay. Um that Matt Tapping had showed me he was running it on one of his machines. So I think I was dual booting. And yeah, I remember calling into there with maybe Trumpet Winsock or even um sometimes DOS. And then um I think Eventually, because you know you could type, you could run either PPPD or SLIP, and 
in Slack where you could run like a flip receiver. I don't. Yeah, dip dial up IP. Yep. You. you, Yeah. Generally, I think we were using dip to to start one of those demons, and it would handle the the construction of a IP interface that was based on it. Yep. Yeah. So it sort of creeps up the tunnel. That's. That's really interesting. So you you actually were running Linux before even you were super internet savvy, and maybe the the so you were friends with you mentioned Matt Pepping, uh, who refuses to be on this podcast for uh, memory reasons, but um, I recall that he had a a uh, a three eighty six like a pretty slow machine, so it would make sense to me that maybe he would look into, you know, some non windows operating system that would be a little bit more responsive to his hardware, right? Like if he was running, you know, just a window, uh, you know, a non windows, um, or something like that. It's, it's so, so he maybe got into Linux for that. And then, then you, you got Linux from him. He gave you some, some floppies or what was Yeah. That? I think he gave me some blackware floppies and I installed it. And I remember like, we didn't know what we were doing. Like if, we forgot to install the man pages. Like we just had to reinstall. That's yeah. <laughs> wow. I I mean, th- yeah, this is this is even new to me. That like your first Linux system, you were root. Like you installed your your or your first Unix interaction. Whereas a lot of us got started on on kind of starting d- dipping our waters into um, having user accounts on on shell servers that were owned by the ISP or whatever. Um, you know, yeah, you you kind of inverted there, so maybe that's why you had the leg up on, on some of us. Yeah, that could be. That's a, that's an interesting way to think about it. I never really thought about exactly how that timeline worked, but I think it was all sort of happening around the time. Gotcha. And so, what were the the next? Do you remember any stories from that? Maybe that 1995 year of like, okay, you know a little bit about Unix. There's some Unix systems out there. We we hit a couple of them. Um, I think that those were maybe a little bit later, 94, 95, 96. Is, it's kind of the prime time that, that we're going to talk about in this episode. But what what was the um, – any any other things that we didn't mention in the lightning round that you, you think might be interesting to talk about for a second? Fun hacks or anything Yeah, so like that? I think I remember when we were connecting um, to that IS. I can sort of remember getting into their uh, radius server and assigning ourselves like static IP address. Uh, you, you, did anyone ever talk? Did anyone go into that? <laughs> no, no. I mean, uh, I, I guess there it was implicit because Dop mentioned you had been locked out of the radi- radius system in the story. Um, where you guys had to do the boot attack on it. I kind of assumed you had pivoted maybe, I mean, it, it, you know, we talked about the getting the root password via XAuth uh, trust. I assumed that you had kind of pivoted because of some, you know, R login files or something like that that lets you, you know, pivot over to that server and um, and maybe use like a, a local attack, like LPR bug or something might have been popular at the time. Yeah, I can't remember. Yeah, it might have been LPR actually. Trying to think how we actually got over there. I know for a while we did have the root password, and we would sort of just drop like we would root binaries pretty much just all over the place, just sort of remember where they were. <laughs> so we could, we okay, maintain persistence that way. 
and, and I'm going to dive in with my retro just because it's fun for me and I don't know. But, um, you know, back in this day, one, we mentioned the LPR. So the printing spooler for Linux, the line print something. <laughs> I don't know what R stands for in that. But line print daemon that allowed you to print, um, which most of these systems didn't even have printers attached. You should not have that stuff installed. But had just had a simple buffer overflow in it on a lot of the default, maybe up through like Slackware three one. Um, like it was, it was you know. So if people hadn't upgraded, patched, or removed LPR, that was a pretty common um, local system exploit. So you just you know grab your .c file that was your buffer overflow that sent a bunch of A's or whatever and elevate privileges. And then you're saying one of the ways after you got access once is you would backdoor a system by creating a copy of the bin bash or bin shell or whatever it was that was owned by root and flipping the set UID flag on it so that if a user then ran that shell, it would elevate privileges with no password and you could move it around and hide it into quirky places. So unless somebody did like an expensive resource wise, an expensive find slash that you know with the uh, let me you know let me find all of the set uid bits and then there was even tricks to maybe hide the files with you know from find and things like that where like maybe you yeah. create a partition that's not mounted and you have the and or something like that that gets mounted on demand or whatever the case may be but there was kind of those layered approaches to backdooring the system as long as you were then as long as you were able to attain a user level account on it you could upgrade to root um which there was a lot more user level attack service or even just in some cases we had user level accounts for services yeah i think we used that method a lot at first and sometimes maybe even just like copying the vulnerable binaries and missions so then if somebody sees it they're like oh well that's the LPD or whatever, but oh yeah, that's a little sneaky. Maybe not yep. knowing it's not. It should it shouldn't be in user local bin versus user bin or something like that. Yeah, exactly. Perfect. Um, so you had access to the radius server, and you just wanted a static IP. I think you could even call them and ask for a static IP. What is this before you could do that? I think we so. I think we were doing some routing, so because we. Um, we were kind of working on a Linux distribution at the time, and we had a couple other boxes that were behind, like, the dial-in machine. And so we would statically assign the address, and then we would do some routing so that we could get to those machines behind that without doing any NAT. It was before NAT was popular. I think that this pivots into one of my favorite stories, which is... A a young Trent is dissatisfied as you know with your two years of of Unix system administration experience. You're dissatisfied uh, by the way that uh, Red Hat and Slackware, in particular, package files. Is this true? Yeah, that's that's definitely true. Um, I think packaging systems were sort of pretty much in their infancy, and there was a lot of uh, competing products in that space. Um, and the U of I had this system that a few of the people were developing there called NCAP. And I thought it was a pretty good system. I liked the philosophy around it. Uh-huh. Uh, so Stop and I were developing a Linux distribution based around this NCAP package. And so 
and, and the philosophy was that every piece of software, the thing that you didn't like is like Slack where the packages were essentially tarred GZ files that just were untarred off of the root file system and went all over the place, right? And maybe there was a text file that told you what files were there, but it what you didn't have authoritative control over what files were getting installed and where they were. So it was hard to uninstall something with any level of confidence. Um, yeah, or, or, exactly. Yeah. So in the end cap system, all the packages were built to user local directory prefix. So any, the, the, I guess the overall philosophy was that any package installed is going to be installed with a, into a very specific directory. And then if there's required any path updates to include like the bin, the, you know, the, the bin piles or executable files, you would symlink that into the system level directory pass or system level local uh, directory pass. And that way, if you wanted to remove a piece of software, you could pretty authoritatively remove the directory and that might break some sim links, but you might, you could also just clean, you know, uh, clean those up with some type of find remove dangling sim links or something like that. So it was yeah, really, so it had a tool that would do a lot of that. It would have a tool that would do the gotcha. for you. It would create them and clean them up. It, and That's to, much what the package manager was. And so from an installation perspective, like, this is kind of containerization, like you don't have process containerization, you don't have whatever, but the, you know, the, the insulating your system in, you know, like being able to manage dependencies and things like that and a different paradigm, I, I think is really important. Now you took this, you like the idea of a package manager, but, you know, running Slackware and then adding on, you know, these, these using this as kind of like how people use brew on OS 10 today wasn't quite enough. You wanted an entirely NCAP managed Linux distribution. So so that was like your project that you say was pretty ambitious. Like you created a Linux distribution in the um, mid nineties, right? Yeah. And I think it was like going back to like Slack where like I can remember just reinstalling it to get the man pages. Cause there's just like all these files. We didn't know what they were. And the thing I really liked about this system is if you're trying to learn about a system, you can kind of just see what, like if you want to see what this binary is, or you just check out the sim link. And oh, it's from this package, and now I can know everything that's on my system. Whereas before, everything was just kind of a mysterious black box. Yeah. So, <laughs> um, so what were the maybe what, what was the biggest challenge in creating your own Linux distribution at the time? I mean, I can, I mean, this seems like it would be an incredible learning experience too. Um, even today, I, I mean, I, there's, there's educational type of efforts like Linux from scratch or whatever that kind of walk you through the steps of this, but you did this without the benefit of that. And like gen two Linux is kind of, you know, completely compiled from scratch, but what, what was the, what was the hardest part or, or what were some of the hurdles in terms of like bootstrapping and I, I should say, like, I was, you guys actually got this up where it was a completely functional desktop OS. Like, you were using this with your, you know, GNOME window manager. I mean, it, it kind of, it was around for a while. I think it was boutique in the sense that a very small, you know, subset of community of people that maybe knew you or something like that were using it. But it, it had a lifespan. Yeah, there was some people using it and it gained a little bit of traction with some people within the U of I. And, um, I think probably the biggest challenge was just like what you said about bootstrapping it, like how to figure out like, okay, what has to be in a base system? Like what's the very minimal system that we can install? And then 
be able to get at least some packages to run on it. Mm-hmm. Figuring out like um, just like what's going to handle the I/O and those kind of things. Yeah, all those little demons and 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 widgets that you never interact with that have to be there to link to subsystems or something like that. And also, not this stuff was not easy to compile or find the version dependency chain, right? Like if you're gonna if you're gonna get you know GNOME working on a desktop or something in two thousand two, and you're you're responsible for every piece of software that builds up to that. You, there's a lot of ways that you can get into broken situations. Oh, I installed this version of libc and this thing won't compile on that. So you're either editing source or you're backtracking, then you're you're restarting on a path to build whatever this, the downstream dependencies were for that. I mean, it just seems like the package building, you know, was an incredible um, uh, endeavor from time, which is, I mean, was there a community around? Was there at least a subset of people that were helping you know, distribute the load on the the compiling of those those trees. Yeah, so DOP was doing it a lot, and um, there was this guy Mike Callie, I think, that we met through a news group that was at the U of I that was just kind of using it, and he ended up sort of stepping up and helping build some of the packages. But yeah, and this was at a time when like dependency management wasn't really that much of even a thing. I mean, RPM was just starting to come out, but even Red Hat wasn't very good at the dependency management time. Mm-hmm. Everyone from around that time didn't have nightmares of RPM hell. So yeah, we had the same issues. I think all all distros pretty much had those issues. And what was your um? I, so you're you're the chief maintainer of a an, an author of a Linux distribution. What was your secu- I mean, there's a lot of security work that has to go into that. Not just you know managing security fixes and patches, but also some, some decisions about, you know, what, what packages to, you know, you're selecting a name server, you know, are are we going to pay attention to, you know, what, what the security news is about one package or another, or, I mean, what did you, did you have a, were you pretty active in, in terms of making security decisions about Nomad? Yeah, I think, um, really, we just tried to minimize the footprint. Like we tried to make sure if anything was going to go in, that was just fluid binary like we knew what it was and what it was going to do and like do we really need it do we even want to include this like right for us okay it was gotcha. just minimization so focus on socket opens focus on things that seem to have a weird level of privileges like you know why does libjpeg need set uid root or something like that and, and ask some of those hard questions yeah maybe if it doesn't we just put it in our package without it on it and Cool. Um, yeah, that I, I didn't I didn't r- remember that well enough to go. You know that that we we're going to spend so much time on it. So you might have to come up for, for three or four episodes. But um, <laughs> why, why don't you kind of uh, wrap up this segment, and we'll be sure to get you back soon on on other stuff. But um, why don't you uh, do you do you want to talk a little bit? I'm I'm curious about that. Um, when you went to crack the the BCL password file, what what was your ambition um you know what and when you did get quote unquote caught what how did that come through was this you know did you get contacted by the school did you go into the principal's office maybe you can tell the insider view of of kind of that event yeah so i don't like i don't really think we had an ambition like it wasn't nothing malicious like right we already 
add accounts on this thing. I think it was more of just, oh, can we do this? Like we have access to these workstations. Yeah, it's kind of what a, will happen. Kind of a fun commuting problem too. Yeah. <laughs> and architecturally, did you split the password dictionary or how did you parallelize or did you split the user file or what was the kind of the parallelization approach there? And did you do any math to figure out, I mean, are those two things equivalent? If you run a hundred crackers with a smaller dictionary is the same as running one hundredth of each password, you know, file. I, I don't, I've never thought about that. So I'm, the way I remember it, I think there was like, um, like a daemon or something that would hand out parts of the dictionary to each different machine. And so it would kind of just split up the work. Ah, so you kind of built a little way. API for it or something like it where, yeah. Okay. Yeah. It might've even had it uh, built into the software. I don't remember exactly what. We, and did you was, run uh, your own high level port that was receiving network connectivity or did you portal things through like a SS, SSH automation? Yeah, I think it was either SSH or maybe even our login at the okay. time. Okay, gotcha. Uh, very, uh, very cool. So then uh, when you do get caught, they notice, I mean, it's a pretty, running a password cracker on some of those, you know, ultra sparks or whatever, it probably bogged down the system enough where somebody complained one time and then they see your demon and they start to unfold, like, what's going on? But what was the, uh, uh, what was the aftermath after, after you get caught, what happens? Yeah, so I mean, like, people are using these machines, right? So it's like, yeah, if it bogs down, it's not massively overpowered. But um, I think the manager of the engineering workstation just sort of um, maybe called me up or emailed me and asked me to come into his office. And I kind of knew what it was going to be about. And so I went over there and just kind of talked to him and, he was like, you know, you really shouldn't be doing this. Like, I don't want to really report this to anybody else. But, I mean, you get kicked out of the university for this. Oh, my but, God. So was that, that the was, most nervous you've ever been? Yeah, I was like, oh, like, you know, I didn't really con- even consider that at the time. You know, we were just, like, having fun, and we didn't really malicious harm. And we kind of came from... We came from a, you know, we were doing this as a community in high school and you're still real. I mean, you're using engineering resources, but you weren't attacking the university directly, right? You were just borrowing some computation time, right? Right. Yeah. There was, I mean, the university wasn't like a target of it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's, that sounds super scary. So then what was the next step? I I think, um, Dop said that he thought the guy called, uh, Tom and and kind of reported this to Tom. Yeah, he, so the guy that I talked to never, he told me he was going to let Tom know about it, but and I never really ever heard anything about it again after that. Like, All right, so we got to do some research like, to see if, if they he did actually call Tom. Yeah. All right. Yeah, I would Maybe love to Greg. hear what happened on that end of it. Maybe our buddy Greg, who worked there at the time, can... can uh, can can give us some background information on that. So, um, cool. Okay, so I I think yeah I, I think we're gonna we we've got you into college and then let's you you're you actually end up pretty so you went was were you working for the database research lab when this when this uh, engineering workstation thing get caught? I mean, he didn't threaten to call your boss or anything, right? No, I think I don't know if I was working there. I might have left there by then. Because I think I left there around nine 
98 or 99, and I might have not been working. Okay. I don't remember the exact lineup. Gotcha. So your jobs um, just in, in, it, it kind of progressed, and, and you were a very young kind of founder level person in a, um, a a startup locally, and I'm sure we'll get into that later. But did you have any other university sysadmin jobs before you kind of dove into that bigger venture with User Active? Um, no, I pretty much just went from uh, that. I I worked went. From from the CS department or the database research lab, it was kind of part of the CS department. Mm -hmm. And um, did a little bit in the math department, um, running some Unix servers systems over there, but that wasn't for very long. Um, started up doing the same stuff at UserX. So we can get into later at another podcast. Yeah, absolutely. Because that, that to me is, I mean, you're a, a sophomore or a junior in college and you just have this business opportunity. And also it's just like, yeah, you were the, you were somebody around that, that could jump in and, and kind of, you know, take your skills to the next level and scale up with, with a, with a business purpose mind. So really exciting. And also just, I, I think not necessarily brave from you in terms of, um, not like you were leaving some some like you know uh, uh, very important job or taking a risk in that sense, but you're still <laughs> trying to get school done, right? And you're you were um, you know you you had to prioritize, and that's something I went through myself, and I think you managed to um, to to handle and navigate you know finishing college and taking on you know this this major change in your life and this new you know bringing your enthusiasm and, and work ethic into a new venture. And you managed to navigate that uh, a lot better than I did. I didn't have your uh, your multi processor support on that one. So, um, <laughs> Trent, uh, thank you so much uh, for admitting to seventy five percent of what you did and 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 cluing us in and and also just talking about. It. I think it's I I uh, really enjoyed talking about kind of the uh, what it was like to be a, a Linux maintainer. So this is a great start, and I'm gonna definitely have you back soon. Great. Yeah. Thanks, Kevin. Thanks for having me on. Yeah. Uh, good going back and remembering some of that stuff. Awesome, Trent. Stay safe on that boat. Take care. All right. Bye. Oh, I think like now that I'm listening to more folks that you grew up with, uh, and you guys are talking about this computer club, I like, I'm actually noticing like I'm younger Dennis is becoming very jealous when I hear you guys talk about this. Like, I think I had mentioned it before, but the only kind of fun thing that I was able to do outside of school when it came to computers was this sort of choose your own adventure books, which I wish I could find um, that had you work out these basic problems within an overall story narrative. But I'm like, Oh man, this computer club that you guys keep referencing or, or talking about different computer camps and stuff. I just, I, I don't even know if we had that where I grew up. Um, it, it was a really fantastic community and it's, it's actually weird that it's like, I think, and I was talking about this with somebody recently who grew up in San Francisco, um, of like, we had opportunities that I don't think would have been there, you know, uh, one that we were at the right time, but like in a big, in a big area where there's all these adults trying to solve computer problems and all this, I don't think we would have the same opportunity. Like we wouldn't have access to go to a ISP in San Francisco and screw around, <laughs> you know, <laughs> like, um, so yeah, just just really right place, right time. And Trent was, 
I, I mean, he he just brings an element of fun to whatever's going on um, in, in terms of, of, of uh, and, and just a, a perspective of getting the most out of, um, you know, experiences. And, and that's why he spends most, you know, a good chunk of, of uh, 50% of his life on a, on a sailboat for the time being. Um, but yeah, I, I just can't, can't say enough good things about this. And then, you know, similarly, just this passion for, for understanding how, how things work and an intuition for, for solving those problems as, as well. So just really cool. Yeah. And I would just say the other thing, that, like also gave me a sense of nostalgia too, was when you were talking about the first computer that he took away to college, uh, having the heat problems, uh, totally reminded me of like the gateway laptop that I had coming out of college that, you know, if you used it on your lap, as it, the laptop name might uh, imply, the thing would totally overheat. And by the time I had finished uh, college, it would only work if I pointed one of those Bed Bath & Beyond Vortex fans completely on it. Uh, and if I moved <laughs> it outside of the fan, the thing would overheat and uh, and just crash. But uh, uh, <laughs> yeah, that, that would, I hadn't thought about that in a long time. And so that was another funny thing that well, took away. Yep. Maybe it had one of those Cyrix chips in it. Ah, could be. Awesome. All right. Thanks again, Trent. Dennis, any closing remarks? I know how you love it when I put you on the spot. Yeah. Dennis, any super hot takes that we haven't thought of for the week? <laughs> uh, no hot take, but uh, a, a just a personal update. I think the chess game, because chess also seems to be kind of a theme with your Not throwback. a chess podcast, Dennis. Not a chess this podcast, but a, people might care. This is an on passant podcast with Den and Kev. <laughs> Anyway, closing closing in on 1400. Thanks to thanks to this. Should we start book. on Passant podcast? I mean, Ooh. it's probably available. I don't know. I don't know, but that that's that's just my update 1400. to you, Kev. What okay. what has been the the secret to your to your growth from a 1300 player to a 1400 player? Got to take my time. I leave way too much time on the clock and I always make some horrific blunder where I've rushed myself for no reason. Okay. So life lesson, guys, mm-hmm. think before you act, There you go. plan, plan those moves. Those moves are experiments that if they go wrong, you're going to, you're going to lose rating points. Yes. Okay. Good, good advice. Yeah. That, that, uh, making fewer mistakes. I mean, you, you spend a lot of time learning about chess. The key thing about applying your learning is not to lose before you've had a chance to think about <laughs> all the stuff. Uh, yes, so exactly. Exactly. I think that that's that's a that's a great lesson for us all. And my chess game has been really poor lately. I, I'm not learning more about chess, so chess becomes a barometer for you know how tired I am and how clear I'm thinking. And been working a lot of nights lately, uh, trying to uh, or part you know working on some global projects. So that's uh, that certainly hurt mm. my. Uh, my during the day mental clarity sometimes yes good to know that as well all right well thanks everyone and we will talk to you next week okay bye